0: Selling a product or service for $2,000 or even $10,000 takes a different approach, even a different skill set than selling something for $47 or maybe $500. Your high-end prospects have different needs, different problems, different beliefs, possibly even a different outlook on life. So naturally, reaching those prospects takes a very different approach. Today, on the 204th episode of the Copywriter Club podcast, we're speaking with high-ticket sales coach Jerisha Hawk. Jerisha started her career as an engineer, not an online business coach, so her entire approach to systems and processes and sales is different from anyone else we've spoken with on the podcast.
1: We'll jump into our interview with Jerisha in a moment. But first, we need to tell you that this episode is brought to you by the Copywriter Think Tank, our high level mastermind for copywriters, content writers, and brand strategists who want to grow their business to the $200,000 mark. This is also where Kira and I both provide our one on two strategy sessions and coaching that's designed to help you achieve more than ever. If you're interested in learning more about the Copywriter Think Tank, Drop us an email at rob at the copywriterclub.com or kira at the copywriterclub.com.
0: Teresha shared so many great ideas in this interview. Both Rob and I were texting each other during the entire interview with different ideas we could test in our own businesses. And we learned not just about selling, but also about designing client experiences so you can deliver the results your clients need and even processes for thinking differently about your business. Let's jump into our interview with Jerisha as she tells us about how she became a sales coach. All right, Jerisha, welcome. We want to kick this off with your story. How did you end up as a high-ticket sales coach?
2: Well, I kind of stumbled my way here. I was an engineer by trade before entering into like, before even knowing this whole online world existed. Um, And I started doing some live videos, started getting into coaching, um, just people asking me to give advice or insight on how I was able to navigate my corporate career and how I was able to position myself for like upward mobility opportunities in a non-traditional way or in a way that just, you know wasn't the same beaten path of how you're supposed to excel in corporate. Um, and one thing I started recognizing during my coaching calls in the very, very beginning when I was charging, you know, $60 for a month of coaching, less than what you would pay for a fitness class. Um, and the biggest thing that I noticed was the transferable skills that I had acquired in corporate America. Um, I used to, was a lead engineer of a $400 million pipeline project. I was responsible for, um, managing our money on a day-to-day basis, making decisions based off of input and output. Um, And I also, so I understood how money moved and, you know, from like a, a corporate perspective, but then I also understood kind of like a gap that I noticed in the industry or that I noticed just from people that I was discussing on, how do you effectively articulate your value in a way that whoever is in the other position, like the buying decision or the position of authority to make a decision, how do you articulate your value in a way Where they get it, and that it also correlates to how it impacts the bottom line or impacts the thing that's most important to them, and how do you position yourself to be able to do that repeatedly? And once I started to recognize that those three things were really like my sweet spot, and as I started growing in the coaching business, um, that's where high ticket sales was like my natural like zone of genius Um, because I think when you are selling offers that are two thousand dollars to twenty thousand dollars, that's usually the range most of my clients are in. There's just a different way that you have to articulate your value than if you're selling something for 500 bucks. There's a different way that you have to position yourself in order to attract people to not just know, like, and trust you, but to, like, believe you, respect you, and and align with you from a value-based perspective to want to be able to invest with you at a higher level. Um, so it was definitely a work in progress. It It took about two years to feel confident in myself to be able to kind of own that as an identity in this online world before I really dove like head in. Um, that's It was really these, recognizing these transferable skills and then also identifying where is the gap that I see in the industry that we're in and where can I really be adding value from a unique perspective?
1: So before we jump into all of the aspects of high ticket sales, I want to ask about your engineering background, because this seems really unique to me. I've talked to a lot of people who've built online businesses who are working in the online space, and I don't think any of them are engineers. So is there something from your engineering background and education that like, made you especially good at what you're doing today, skills that you learned there that you apply to uh, how you help people today?
2: Yeah, I have clients that joke and say I'm never hiring a coach that wasn't an engineer after working with you now. Um I think one of the biggest things is that as an as an engineer, like we're trained to use the resources that we have to creatively solve problems. So I think, you know, I think that was like a mindset shift that individually helped me as a business owner in the online space or just with my business because I don't look at problems at as I don't know, opportunities of failure, exactly. Like if it's more of a big experiment and it's like, okay, I'm willing to test and try and experiment until I can figure out a solution rather than if I try once feeling like ridiculously defeated, if it doesn't pan out. And I think that's a that's a mindset aspect that really does correlate to how I coach my clients is really getting them on board that it's really progress over perfection. We're really here. It's continuous improvement, not get it right on the first time um and so i think that's like a it correlates into how we teach and coach our curriculum and i think it makes me a bit different but i think the other thing that really has been a huge advantage for me um because of being an engineer is i think very process oriented so all of my curriculum is designed in a way where if a client comes in it's like, it's like an assembly line. How can we design our curriculum in a way that moves them through that assembly line so that they are getting consistent results from client to client? And it's very predictable. It's very repeatable. And I think that is a huge reason why um, we have a very high success rate of our clients. We have a, a coaching program that's around that $2,000 price point. I'd say 75, 80% of our clients earn a full return on investment within the first 90 days. Um, which traditional courses or online programs, they normally have about a 10 to 12% completion rate in our industry on average. Um, with our higher programs that are in the five figure price point, like we're, we're just able to help people grow pretty fast, pretty quickly. And I think that's 100% attributed to how we design our curriculum. And that is what something I learned from being an engineer of like, how do you think about the step by step process? That would guide somebody through knowing when they need to do what and where their focus needs to be to be able to produce whatever the desired end objective is that was promised to begin with. So I think just how I think about curriculum is more aligned with maybe how, um, you know, Apple thinks about creating a new software and pre- creating a new product or how maybe software companies think about developing software. It's this alpha beta delta launch It's through this continuous improvement and this like feedback loop that you get from clients to enhance your curriculum. Um, And I think even the clients we get to serve, like when they start to think about their curriculum and their client experience journey, it really puts them at a huge advantage against their peers because most other coaches or service providers or copywriters in the industry, they may be amazing at what they do, but they may not know how to deliver their client experience and like the delivery of whatever they do in that predictable of a manner. So I think those are two things that have I hundred percent attribute to being like my engineering background for sure.
0: Well, let's, let's break that down even more because, um, you know, I'm not naturally a process person. I don't have a, ba- a background in engineering. Um, so if I want to create this incredible experience for my copywriting clients and also, you know, with my programs that we run together, I want high completion rates. I want them to be engaged. I want them to perform well in those programs, um, how can I do that better? Like what are some really specific steps I can take, especially if I don't you know I'm not naturally process minded like you?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. One of the first things that I recommend, um, and I think really what elevates a client experience and really differentiates a person from um, peers or competitors in an industry, is your ability to be able to anticipate your clients' needs before they know they need them. So I think in sales or in marketing, a lot of us can default to know, okay, I need to overcome some objections to get somebody to buy. And we think that's the only time that we're gonna have to overcome an objection. Once a client enrolls and pays and signs on for their copywriting services, you still have to overcome objections that they are going to have to do to provide you the de- provide you the deliverables that you need to produce the the website that you, you know, they need to send over the copy. Well, I guess they're right, you guys are writing the copy, but whatever the deliverables are, like there's, there's still objections that we have to overcome once they become a client to get to the finished product. So one of the first things that I recommend to enhance your process, even if you're not process oriented, is look at your client journey from the moment they enroll until a project is complete and identify what are the two to four key areas where there's typically resistance or resistance to doing whatever is needed to be able to move them forward in the process And then start to creatively think of, okay, what could I be doing to help either remove that barrier altogether or to upfront communicate with the client to say, hey, at these points during the journey, you may feel some resistance. You may experience X, Y, or Z. And this is I may not be able to remove that feeling or that fear that you may experience, but here are the tools that you're going to need to be able to manage them so that you can still move forward versus stalling, stopping, or quitting altogether. And I think that is one thing that um, everybody listening to this can absolutely do in their client experience journey or their curriculum uh, delivery journey, depending on how you show up as a copywriter, um, to be able to enhance that experience and help increase the likelihood that your clients are going to get the result that you promised when they enrolled with you.
1: So those are client processes. What about personal processes for things like you know getting more work done, or maybe even you know we talk about morning routines, those kinds of things like. How can we take those same principles and apply them to processes that help us be more
2: effective? Oh, like in the business, like on the back end operations?
1: Yeah, um, business and just like with execution and getting things done and, you know, making sure that, you know, we're actually moving forward um, with building the parts of our business that maybe aren't client facing.
2: Man, I I wish I had like the perfect solution for that because I struggle with that on a daily basis, Rob. (laughs) But um,
1: Me too. That's why I'm asking. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Well, one of the things that um, has been really powerful for me as a business owner is um, either every Monday or every Friday, just depending on the week, I carve out about an hour in my calendar to do what I like to call super thinking. Um, Brooke Castillo has an amazing podcast about it. And there's also a book called The Road Less Stupid that also really discusses just the importance of giving yourself time to think and come up with ideas and come up with solutions rather than just reacting um so that's that carved out time has really like how has helped me improve my processes from as a business owner and operational back end because now I'm starting I guess the way a problem can present itself right like how do I get how do I enroll 10 new clients by the end of the month and if we just start I think the natural default for a lot of us is just um you know you kind of just start throwing spaghetti at the wall and waiting to see what sticks without fully diagnosing like what's the actual problem that we're trying to solve and what is really planning the process rather than planning the outcome like what what is really required of me to accomplish that goal given the parameters and conditions that exist and i think that's i guess a process like developing a process on how you make decisions is probably one of the most important processes i have developed as a personal individual and has allowed me to, um, you know, lead a better team, a very lean team and be an effective business owner is having a process for how you make decisions. Um, And that's something that's been a work in time, but it all started with me setting up time to just give myself time to think. What are the challenges that I'm currently experiencing this week? What is the actual problem that I'm trying to solve? Like really giving myself space to diagnose a situation or a challenge or an obstacle beyond just like what I'm seeing at surface level. And it normally always boils down to some like mindset shift or internal fear that I have that I haven't reconciled yet. That's really the thing that's preventing me from moving forward. Like it's What I've noticed for me, it's some area or specificity within a self-sabotaging activity that is preventing me from taking the action or making the decision or making the hire or being bold and courageous enough in my marketing content or whatever it is. Um, So I, I don't know if that's like the answer you were looking for, Rob, but I think like creating space in your calendar to give yourself the opportunity to actually think and properly diagnose challenges and situations. And something I recently told my clients to do, and this is something I revisit on a quarterly basis personally is look back at Pat, like look back at past, like over the last quarter, what were some key decisions that um, you, you had, you, you made, but really think about how did I make that decision and what influenced that decision? Did I make the decision out of fear? Did I make that decision out of an abundant mindset? Did I make that decision, um, reactionary? Was I proactive in that decision? Because then you can start to reverse engineer. Like I had this obstacle. I This is the criteria that I used to make that decision. I maybe not didn't recognize it in the moment, but reflecting back, I can kind of see it. And then I can now make a decision. Do I want to continue making decisions that way? Like, does that actually serve me and serve where I'm trying to go? Um, and that's something that, you know, you can teach your team how to do as well. So that when you start delegating and hiring team members, you're not just delegating tasks but you're also teaching them how to make decisions to move the company forward. So that's that's one that's relevant. I literally did it yesterday, Rob, and that's so yeah, I hope that answered the question. <laughs>
1: I mean, it definitely gives me things to think about here because you know the process for making decisions and the process for um, using your time more wisely, that's that's something that I'm always trying to dial in too. So I love hearing your perspective on it. I, there's some things here I'm going to try. I'm definitely putting the road to less stupid on my book list. Uh, I could use a lot less stupid in my life.
2: <laughs> it's a good read for sure.
0: Okay. So you mentioned you did this yesterday with your team. Can we run through that and your process for making decisions with your team after you've already diagnosed the problem? Can you give us some examples of what that conversation looked like with your team um, so we can start doing it within our own business, You know, whether or not we have a team?
2: Yeah. I mean, my team is two part-time employees and like we're a seven-figure company. We are very lean. And I was doing this before I had the team, but I think sometimes, uh, I want to point this out before even diving into this, uh, Kira, if this is okay, is I think sometimes when we're solopreneurs, we forget that we're also employees to the company that we're building. And I think it's so important for us to not lose sight of that, is like, yeah, it might be just you building this company, but also think about yourself as an individual. I'm also an employee of this company. And that means, like, am I giving myself performance reviews? Am I sitting down with myself and having, like, being an active participant in the strategy meeting? that you would be having if, if the team was bigger. So I just wanted to point that out because regardless if you have a team or you don't, um, it's super important to be having these conversations. Um, but with the team, like one of the ways that we've been doing this, before I, I was very terrible at this. I would just have a list of tasks. It would have very clear outlines of like what, well, a lot of the time it actually didn't have clear outlines on what success looked like or how to get it done. And then I would hand them over to somebody. And as the, what I realized is that I'm still the one making all of the decisions um, and really like I stopped necessarily having to execute the task, but now I'm having to answer all the decision questions that they have, um, which is not, you now become the bottleneck in the business and can stall the growth of the company. Um, But how this looked this past week with the team, I did this yesterday individually, but um, about a week ago, we did this with the team and having help like when we are creating new projects so it's like okay where do we this is the end objective that we're trying to get to by the end of the year that was what this discussion was Is like how do we finish the year based off of these goals and metrics that we set at the beginning of the year and we kind of start from a clean slate um that's something I also learned from corporate is like a I think it was called a zero sum budget where every year we would start at from zero and somebody you would have to basically like uh re-establish necessity for purchasing things, hiring things, where we spent money, where we spent time. We'd have to do that every single year. So I kind of take that same approach on a quarterly basis on when we plan goals. If we had to start from where we are right now, not obligated to doing anything we were doing yesterday, not obligated to doing anything that we said we were going to do tomorrow, what are the things that we would do to get the, to hit the objective that we try to hit? And everybody submits their project ideas um, and once those project ideas are established and set, then we start to diagnose like okay, what is the, like, is this scope of work clearly defined? Is this something that we can complete in the next six weeks? So how, how does this is something we also learned from Basecamp, um, the software company. They have a really great book called Shape up and the shape up book walks through the process of how they plan projects. so a lot of the inspiration for what we're doing now for our company is actually based off of, um, some of the frameworks that they teach inside of that book on how to break down problems and clearly define the problem that you're trying to solve and all of that. Um, But one of the things that we have all of our team members do is, okay, what would be like, what are the things that have to happen in order to accomplish this project? But then also it's the responsibility of the team members to say, what decisions would somebody need to be able to make to be able to complete this task? And now this allows us to start shifting ownership. Um, it also allows them to see themselves as owners a part of the process, because it's not just about you doing what Jerisha told you to do, but, okay, what are the decisions that I need to be able to make to be able to complete this task? And kind of thinking about them before the project actually rolls out. Um, and what ShapeUp kind of calls that is like uh, identifying the rabbit holes or like what are the potential pitfalls that you might run into? And how can you do more of that thinking on the front end rather than being reactionary to it, like once things roll out? Um, so that is something like, it, it's very collaborative. There's some work that they do ahead of time and they bring that to the meeting so that we can be a bit more efficient because we have a, a remote team um, during our time together. But I think just diagnosing like, what are the decisions that we have to make? And then now it's been my responsibility. And I think as, a, as an individual business owner, if you have a team, it's really important. This is new for us. Of like, how do we make decisions as a company? And then how can I start to coach my team members on how to do that more effectively um, while we're, you know, learning and growing so that they can feel more confident in their decision-making ability, rather than just running back to me saying like, this is the problem. What am I supposed to do? And me giving them the answer.
1: So I'm really taken with this idea of running a performance review on, you know, a S on a single person in the business. That's not me too. I've never considered that before. And I, there's a lot of talk, you know, when you start as a freelancer or whatever, that you, you know, may have the, worst boss in the world, right? Because we are our own bosses and we're, we don't hold ourselves accountable to the things that we maybe say we do. Do you have like a, a formal, like like a form or a set of questions that you ask yourself when you do that kind of thing, or is it informal? And you're just thinking, you know, what am I doing to reach my goals? What is the goal that I'm trying to reach? What does that look like?
2: Well, the I, <laughs> I'm working on creating it a bit more formal. I'm laughing because the first question I ask myself is like, would I hire myself again?
1: Yeah, that, that's a terrible question. <laughs> it it <laughs> is, in.
2: it is, but it's very enlightening. Like I do it with my team members every quarter, every six months. I'm like, knowing what I know about this person's performance, their interactions, like would I hire them again? So when I do my own performance reviews, I'm like, well, would I hire myself like to do the things that I'm say that I'm supposed to be doing? Um, and I'm laughing because I've, I've had to fire myself multiple times. And luckily I've been able to rehire myself multiple times. <laughs> um, but it's a it's a really good reality check. And it's like if the answer is no, it's like, why is that? Like where and it's it's really having like these conscious, like radical conversations um with yourself. And I mean, I always say like I think entrepreneurship is the best form of therapy if you allow it to be. Um, because some people will one, not maybe give honest answers to that question. And two, if they are saying that like, okay, yes, I'm dropping the ball here, here, and here, are you going to be, operate with, with a level of self-integrity to say, okay, take ownership for where I maybe have been dropping the ball and like recognize this is what I'm committed to doing moving forward. Um, but that's your, that's usually the question I start with. Um, and then asking myself, okay, well, well, why or why not? Like what's actually coming up? And then that really starts to, it's, That starts to peel back the layers of like where the actual, again, it's going back to like really properly diagnosing the actual problem. Cause then it starts to say like, oh, well maybe I'm, I'm not doing a good enough job actually communicating expectations to my clients. That's why I'm having this issue with, you know, boundaries being abused. And it's like, okay, well, what do you need to be doing to better communicate expectations with clients so that there are healthier boundaries between your working relationship rather than you burning yourself out or getting to a place where you absolutely resent your clients. And then it just allowed, that has always allowed me to actually dig deeper and actually find out, like, take ownership of what's going on rather than saying, well, well, this is just what it is. And like, kind of, um, I don't know, crying wolf to the circumstances, um, but it's actually been a really empowering exercise as long as I maintain pers- that that angle of perspective. Um, but that's it. Normally starts with that question, and then, it, then it's a series of like, well, why is this happening? Well, where is this coming up? Um, okay, well, well, what caused that? Another question that I always ask in my performance evaluations is like, where am where am I not taking ownership? And like, where do I need to be taking ownership at a greater level? Um, and then another question, uh, I might need to pull this up. I might be able to send this to you guys to put it in the show notes later. Cause I do have some questions that I ask myself every single time, but another one is just like, what decision am I delaying out of fear? Like what decision am I not making because I'm afraid?
0: Those are good. Those are really good. So I, yeah, I definitely need to fire myself. I'll do it right. (laughs) I'll do it right after this recording.
1: So obviously, we're a bit taken in by this idea of doing a personal employee review. And Kira, I know you're mostly joking when you just said that you're thinking about firing yourself, but I had exactly the same reaction. There are a lot of things that I should fire myself for getting wrong. So what do you think about this whole idea of the personal employee review, reviewing ourselves and the role that we're supposed to be filling?
0: I I was not joking. I did fire myself. No, I I really do think that that... Um, that resonated with me because I've never done that. I've never thought through what how I'm performing as an employee. And I that was such a big mindset shift for me, listening to Jerisha talk through that and kind of a, a much needed kick in the butt for me to stop blaming others. Not that I'm necessarily blaming others for everything, but I think it's really easy to not take ownership of everything you're doing as a business owner until you sit down and start to evaluate honestly Uh, how you're performing, and looking really hard at where you need to improve. And I think there's just just a big switch in the way that she described it compared to just sitting down and journaling every Monday, which I've done. Like I've done that, but it doesn't quite penetrate deep enough uh, for what we need to do as business owners.
1: Yeah, I think anybody who's been through that corporate review process has done this for themselves, but more to justify their position Right. You're not looking at it like a manager looking at yourself. You go through that process. You're like, oh, I did this and I did this and I did this and that." therefore I need my 3% raise. Looking at it from the other direction where I'm the business owner and now I'm looking at myself also as an employee. And I'm not trying to justify what I've done in the past, but I'm saying, given what you've accomplished in the past or what you should have done, would I hire myself again to do the same job? And I think the answer is often no. And When we have done this, we haven't gone through this process, but when I've thought of things like, you know, what should I be giving up? You know, I used to edit the podcast. I am not a good podcast editor. That should not be, you know, the thing that I spend my time on. And so fortunately, we've got somebody who's much better at doing that. And I could fire myself from that job. And there are probably another dozen things that I'm doing today that I should fire both in, in our business, the Copywriter Club, and in my own business, you know, I I don't, I shouldn't be doing the bookkeeping or I shouldn't be doing the invoicing. There's somebody who is better at that stuff that lets me focus
0: on the things that I'm really good at. Yeah. And I think we should incorporate it into what we're doing um, for TCC, what we're doing together. If you and I had a call every once a month where we critique ourselves and even critique each other, which we've never really done. Um, It could be a little uncomfortable, but probably would help the business uh, in the long run. So it might be worth us testing it uh, too. And I was just going to say on the flip side, um, you mentioned, you know, in some ways we have to defend, if you're working in a corporate environment, you're defending your position and you're trying to, um, you know, defend it and get that raise. But as business owners, I think we need to do a better job of also complementing ourselves and um, identifying our strengths, too. So as much as I should identify where I'm not doing as well, I should also spend some time to identify what were some of the big wins. Because as copywriters, I do think we tend to be really critical of ourselves And we don't celebrate the wins or what we have done well. I know you and I don't do that very well either. So it could go both ways.
1: Yeah, for sure. One other thing that really stood out for me from what Jerisha was talking about is that Hour of super thinking. And this is something that I think both of us do in maybe a different way. You know, I know we have set aside days where you know we don't do calls, we don't do um, other things in our business, so that we can really focus in on one or two things. And this is a concept that I actually learned from Perry Marshall. He calls it Renaissance time. And you know, you get up in the morning, maybe you exercise or whatever, but then you take some time to sit down and to really think about your business. What should you be doing? to, you know, find bigger ideas in your business, or, you know, you ask questions like, okay, if I'm going to make a million dollars this year, what do I need to be doing differently? How much do I need to be charging? What kinds of clients do I need to be working with? And just taking time to really think, you know, CEO time, renaissance time, uh superpower hour, super thinking, whatever you want to call it, but taking some time every week to focus on the big questions in our business so that we're not just doing the same thing week in and week out. I I really like that idea. I just wanted to point that out as well.
0: Yeah, and I've struggled with this, you know, CEO hour on Mondays. I've talked about how I do it. I do set aside time most of the time, right? Some weeks I I miss it. Um but I've also struggled to figure out okay Now that I'm sitting down on my couch and I have a journal in front of me, what am I doing with this 30 minutes or hour that I'm thinking about the business and having the CEO hat on? And so um, Jerisha definitely gave some really good ideas. I think that performance review could be a weekly idea that you integrate into that Monday hour or even half hour, or maybe at least once a month. And then also a lot of what I took away from uh, this conversation with her was about Diagnosing our problems. And, you know, she's clearly a problem solver. We all are. Um, she's just developed a lot of great systems for problem solving. And so I could easily use that hour, uh, that renaissance time to really properly diagnose our problems as a business and go much deeper. Because a lot of what she talked about is that we tend to identify the problems on the surface level. But if you look much deeper, you can identify the real problem, and then you can start to reverse engineer a solution. So um, it's definitely something I'm going to start to implement during those hours where I'm sitting on the couch and having my CEO hour.
1: Okay, so let's get back to our discussion with Jerisha.
0: Let's pivot a little bit here. And I really want to talk about high-ticket sales. Um, let's start with where we mess this up and maybe, you know, I know you work with some copywriters. Maybe we generalize it a little bit more, but where do we typically fall down when we're trying to make the high ticket sale? Well,
2: I will talk about copywriters because it's really interesting that a lot of writers that when they initially come to me, um, there's this huge mindset that copywriters can't make money online or that writers don't get paid high ticket. And like, there's and I'm not sure if this is the same for listeners uh, here,
1: but that yeah.
2: is a- yeah. Okay. Is. Wanted to make sure it wasn't just like my pool of people in the world, but like they come to me with this belief that like, oh, because I'm a writer, unless I'm like Rachel Hollis or like Oprah and have this New York Times bestselling book, I can't make money as a writer. Um, And I just think the very, like I think that belief is where a lot of individuals go wrong because they don't even give themselves permission that working with, you know, clients paying them $2,000 or $15,000 or $40,000 for projects is even available to them. So, like, you know, Kira, I think that's like the first, like, where people go wrong, especially copywriters, is they don't even give themselves permission that that's available to them as, a, as an option in their business.
1: So yeah, so let's assume then that I want to start adding high ticket sales to my business, whether it's you know projects you know two thousand dollars plus, or I'm not even sure, maybe high tickets more than that, 5000 dollars. Like, what are what are the steps? How do we start um, figuring out like what it is that we should be offering and how do we sell it?
2: Yeah, um, I want to say like I know somebody, a friend that's a copywriter. She sells a forty thousand dollar copywriting contract for a twelve month agreement. Um, and she, she literally sells out every single year all of her spots because, but I'm like, how did she do that? Or how can somebody listening to this do that? I think the first thing is like recognize, like one, actually um, getting clear on defining what the offer promise is going to be. And this is where the mindset typically needs to shift because it's not like, well, I'm, you know, we, we, have to, we have to really think about it beyond just like I'm writing emails for somebody or I'm creating a sales page copy or like thinking about it from like what the deliverable is. But really start to think about it as like, what is the promise that I'm guaranteeing with this? You know, let's say you're doing a sales page um, for somebody's coaching program launch. And I know most people that I know in the space that are char- they charge five to $15,000 to do that. And it's not just because of how much quote unquote time that they spend writing, but they understand how to articulate the value from, I know that me giving them the sales page is going to produce X amount of money for them. So shifting how, like really thinking about what is the promise or the guarantee, like what is the, the outcome that is able to be produced by the copywriting that you're, you're delivering to that client and you getting clear on what that is. Um, I think the second thing is like aligning your price, understanding like what does it operationally take from an expense standpoint to be able to do what you do or a time perspective, but also think about it of like, what is the return on investment? that this client is going to experience by the work that I'm writing for them um, and just making sure there's a healthy balance between those two things. Um, and then when it comes to the actual packaging of the offer, like I think a lot, it's, it's you have to keep it simple. Like confused clients do not convert. And if one thing I noticed with copywriters uh, who are selling lower ticket and they start transitioning into high is they offer way too many freaking options. It's like too many a la carte it's and I know from me the one making the buying decision if it's too convoluted like I have to figure out what I need um I think as a copywriter when you start elevating your price points it's it's not like well let this client just decide what they want they're also hiring you because you're the expert you they want you to come to the table saying this is what you need and this is this is the package that delivers it versus giving them like all the variable options of well, give me this, but take out that. Like they're trying to like, I don't know, customize the Build-A-Bear. They, they. I think when you start stepping into high end, there's a level of expertise and certainty that, that somebody is also paying for and why they're willing to pay premium because they're working with somebody who understand, and this is really where niching down, we call it the POP method, pick one problem, pick one person, package one process. So when you start elevating into high ticket, it's really important to, one synthesize down like and really narrow a niche down on like what the actual deliverable is gonna be, who specifically it is gonna be for. Um and like not necessarily having this wide swing of customization from client to client. Cause that does allow you to establish like more position yourself as a as an authority, as an expert, rather than being a generalist. I call it like the spork analogy. Um you guys like you know, like sporks, like they're spoons. Yeah. Like oh, food. that's yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. The Kentucky
1: Fried Chicken yeah. utensil. <laughs>
2: yes. You can't eat a $500 steak with a spork. Like <laughs> the spork is trying to do too many things. Um, and a lot of the time in business, when you start elevating, a lot of people and myself included, when I started my business, I was a spork. I was trying to be a spoon and a fork. I was trying to do all the things that, you know, customize and bend and shape that, Well, I can serve everybody. Um, but when you're trying to move into elevated price points and higher end premium services, you gotta decide, are you the knife, are you the fork, or are you the spoon? And like, you know, you can't successfully eat a like a high-end steak with a with a plastic spork. So it's stop being a spork and we really have to start stepping stepping into being a specialist. And the pop method is a really great rule of thumb of pick one problem that you're gonna be solving that's specific, that's tangible, that is results-based. Um, Focus on one, you know, a a minimum viable audience, like one specific narrow niche target client to go after and really focus on developing, packaging one process that, you know, I would say 80% is pretty consistent from client to client and there might be a little bit of margin for variable or customization.
0: Okay. So let's say we've figured this out. We've worked through the pop and we have, we've figured all that out. How do you structure the sales call for high ticket? What are you doing differently um, compared to just like selling a regular package? What do we need to be thinking about, asking, and doing on those calls?
2: Yes, I love this question. I love talking about sales and making money, it makes me so happy. (laughs) Um, And I love other people making more money, but we call it the champagne closer method. Um, And this came from like when you see like luxury high end real estate, a lot of the time the real estate agent isn't selling the house. The house kind of sells itself. All they have to do is just bring the champagne, pop the bottle and pour the glasses. Um, But the house sells itself. And when you start elevating your price points and handling a sales conversation, I want you to think about it from that type of perspective. Um, But we are really big on, I use organic marketing um, to sell. And I'm I'm giving you guys context because it's not just about what, there's a lot of selling that happens before we ever get somebody on the call. Um, but I would say most people, most of my clients, especially the ones in the writing space, how they used to handle their sales calls were, you know, they get on a sales call, they may talk to the client about, you know, what results are looking to accomplish, like what exactly it is that they want. Um, and then on that call is when they really start to, to sell the offer, like breaking down all the things that are included. Um, then they start getting objections or, you know, questions that are, you know, not closing questions, but more of like maybe objections or those types of things. And they're trying to handle a lot on one call conversation. Um, And I know a lot of clients, especially in the writing space in the past, is like, I feel sleazy. I don't want to feel misleading. Like it's kind of too much spotlight at one time for me to be able to handle that on that one phone conversation. And I kind of like crumble in either discount or downsell versus like enrolling them in the thing that I know that they need because it was just too much to kind of manage and handle on one call. So we kind of like to not even kind of we like to break up um, our sales process a bit using our in our free content. Instead of teaching people what to do, we start teaching people what to think and all of our marketing content. If you're selling Kai ticket, I highly recommend that you start to do this is what are the objections that you've always gotten? What are the limiting beliefs that somebody has? What are all the other options that somebody might consider over you that's preventing them from wanting to work with you? And then how can? what is the belief that they have and how can you shift that belief in your free content? Because if people are consuming your free content and you're shifting their beliefs in that free content, you're kind of taking some of that load of convincing that you have to do on a sales call and you're doing it before you even ever make like physical contact with that person. So that's the first thing that I would change about your sales process um, to help alleviate and streamline the actual sales call. But stop teaching people what to do in your content. No more of this like how to, here are three copywriting subject line hacks. Like we wanna stop. And that works really, really well when you're selling low ticket. But when you start raising the rates, it the buying decision criteria of a client significantly evolves. So we want to use your free content to not teach them necessarily what to do all the time, but start teaching them what they need to think. What are the beliefs and the mindset that we need to shift them into? And then once we invite them to the call, once the call is actually started and you've already done some of this belief shifting in your organic content, then, you, you know, at the beginning, we will, you know, kind of build rapport, we'll set the, st- we'll, we talk about where they fu- future-wise want to go. We talk about what challenges they're experiencing now. And then I pause. And say, what about this conversation has been the most valuable for you? Because that gives me some, like, now I'm not having to sell myself on why I'm so good. They're now selling themselves on why I'm so good. Like, they're the ones saying it versus me convincing them. So it's it's leading, um, we call, it's permission-based sales. It's leading from a very, um, like, permission-based perspective. So instead of me forcing myself on them or trying to convince them of how valuable, like, I know that I am, I give them the opportunity to tell me instead, and that's a minor tweak, but it has a significant impact. Once we talk about value and you know why me, why now, like why is this important for you? I'd, I never lead with like the closing information. I always ask, okay, where would you like to go from here? What questions do you have for me? And it completely changes the dynamic of the call because now I'm not selling anything. All I'm doing is holding space, and they're asking questions. They may ask, well, how much is this? Really great question. Let me explain to you how the investment works, or what is the time frame, or when can I expect deliverables. Excellent question. Let me break that down. And again, it shifts the dynamic of me like convincing them or having to tell them to them asking me just responding. So it those are that's like really how I would handle, and that's how we do handle, it's how we teach our clients to handle high and sales conversations. But it starts with the organic marketing ahead of time because we're your free content is doing a lot of the heavy lifting for you so that you're not doing it on your sales call. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. And I love this conversation and the way you're kind of shifting my thinking, hopefully other people's thinking as well around um, changing from, you know, what to do to what to think. I'm curious, what does that whole pre-sale period look like? So, you know, the typical copywriter maybe has a lead magnet that then leads to some kind of a form or, or engagement, but with a high ticket sale, it feels like that process is going to be a little bit longer, maybe more complex, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that. What, what does that process? And I, again, I know this is probably going to be different for different clients. Can you give us maybe a template for what that should look like?
2: Yeah. We teach all of our clients the same process, um, whether they're a copywriter selling high ticket or a a wellness coach. Um, But we, I'm a very like lean approach perspective, um, it can be complicated if you choose for it to be, but like where I found my greatest level of success is when we kept it lean and kept it simple. Um, so our whole sales process is really, our, and our marketing process starts with live video content. And in today's world, especially when you're selling high ticket, you know, it, especially if you're focusing on organic marketing methods, um, live video is going to be your best bet because one, all the social media platforms prioritize live video content over stagnant posts or, um, pre-recorded uploaded videos. So you're going to get naturally a higher organic reach than you would have other content. Um, but we start, we, we call it the lean launch and it's, um, it, well, I want to go back to your first thing, Rob of, like, well, I think maybe it'll take me longer to get somebody to buy one metric that everybody who's listening to this should start paying attention to is like, what is your actual sales cycle? From the moment that somebody discovers you to the moment that they purchase, how long does that take? And what type of touch points happen in between um, that would cause somebody to buy? Cause it's really important to know what that is. Um, we've been able to help our clients get down to like a, a, about a three-month sales cycle for a high-ticket offer, which some of them do it significantly faster, but I'd say on average, that's usually the time frame, three to four months. Um, but the, we focus on live video content. We teach our clients if it's a targeted launch period where they're trying to sell something specific, we will typically do their lean launch. It's nine videos over three weeks. And the important thing that I think would be most valuable for somebody listening is not just like turn your camera on and go live. Well, it is that simple. That is the thing about it. But really thinking about how do I, what type of content do I need to be introducing in those videos to be able to shift beliefs before I get somebody on a sales call? And this is really where you start to break down how buyers make decisions at a higher price point level. Um, and there's really three phases of awareness that every prospect goes through before they're willing to make a buying decision. There's an unaware, there's a problem aware, and there's a solution aware. Unaware, they don't actually know what their problem is or they have misdiagnosed what their problem is. like, you know, um if we're talking about copywriters, maybe maybe it's a a coach who just thinks that they need to read, they need to just learn how to write copy on their own in order to sell their thing. When in actuality, it's not their zone of genius. They actually just need to hire a copywriter. Um, but that's a belief that we have to now shift them into. Like this is the value of why you hire a copywriter. This is really what copywriters actually do. Like this is why you should hire an expert versus you trying to do it on your own. Um, then once you can get them and buy them into the belief that they understand what their actual problem is as it aligns with what your offer is. Then you have to get them to buy into like, what is the actual solution to that problem? Do they hire, you know, a generalist copywriter? Do they hire a freelance copywriter off of Upwork? Like what type of copywriter should they actually be hiring? A conversion copywriter versus like maybe more of a nurturing and engagement type of copywriter, but you have to enroll them into what solution that they need to buy. And then once they're solution aware, why you? And so that's like the the type we do in one live video well, we do that if it's a targeted launch, it'll be nine videos over three weeks, walking through those three phases of awareness. If it's ongoing content, we typically like to do at least one live video a week. But really, the the, the thing that makes it magical, the thing that makes it really work is I, I always say sales is a contact sport. The more contact that you make with your prospects, the more money that you will naturally make. Um, but many of us are not making enough contact. So it's like, how can I increase my contact with my prospects without me as the business owner or the individual having to make 50,000 pieces of content every week? You, this is where we start to leverage our live video. So we'll take our live video and we'll repurpose it into a podcast episode. We'll take our live video and transcribe it and turn it into an email newsletter. We'll take that live video and transcribe it into an Instagram caption. We'll take that live video and turn it into a small video that we upload on our newsfeed. I'll do Instagram stories recapping the things that I talked about in that live video. And because our approach is organic, now we've now, um, I only know how to play two video games, The Sims and Call of Duty. And (laughs) in Call of Duty, you wanna like surround the flag, like you wanna surround your prospects. And it's like, how can you, you wanna surround your like opponent? And it's like, how can I do the exact same thing from a marketing perspective? You, instead of trying to create all these assets of content, Create one hero piece of content, which I like to use live video, and then strategically repurpose that so that you're making, you're increasing the likelihood that you're going to make contact with the prospect, and also increasing the likelihood that you're going to shift that belief that needs to be shifted for them to be even in a position to make a buying decision.
0: Okay, that that was amazing. So we definitely need to work on our our content and how we're approaching our content, um, Drisha, I kind of want to step backwards right now. And this might be repetitive, but I just want to make sure I understand it because I love the way that you structure your sales call. And so it sounds like you're asking questions, you know, finding out about what they're struggling with, um, a couple of questions, and then you're asking them a question and throwing it back at them. So what what did you learn from this conversation or what was your biggest takeaway? And then maybe a little bit more chatting. And then at the end, you're asking them, again, what questions do you have? What are what would help you make next steps forward? Can you just break it down a little bit more? Because I want to do this. I want to test it. Yeah, that's good. So
2: I would start the conversation of like building just natural rapport. But I love to always have the conversation of why now, why me? And this is really important because um, I think, you know, we – they schedule the call, so we just like assume a lot of the time, like, well, they're here because they want to be here. But I think it's really important to solidify like, from their own words and then being the one say it of like, this is why I chose you again. Now they're selling themselves on you again, but they're doing it verbally. Um, and why now? You always want to understand urgency because um, you know you can get talk to people all day, but if there's if there if you don't clearly understand why this is urgent for them, why this is a priority for them now. Versus them investing or doing something else, um, you know, we can really drop the ball by not having clarity on that upfront. So I like to get that out of the way and really really dig into like understanding what their urgency and the priority factor is now, and why is that important for them right now versus like waiting another week or waiting another year to solve this problem. Um, and, that, and And, and if, if there's no urgency. Um, and like there's no real good reason as to why they want me, like I will end the sales conversation because it's not, the the whole goal of the sales call, my goal is not to get them to buy. My goal is for them to make a decision, whether that decision is with me or not with me. It's very like service over selling. And I think um, from a selling perspective, it allows you to detach from what the outcome is, but it also just ensures that you're operating from integrity and enrolling people into something that is aligned and is a good fit. Um, so that's the first thing, like if, if there's no clear level of urgency and there's not really a clear understanding of like why me and why now, like I will just say, "Hey, I'm not really seeing there's alignment. I'm not sure if I'm actually going to be able to help you solve your problem. Let me refer you to somebody else, or like, let me just wish you well and be blessed. Um, But if we can get through that, then as we talk about the future, like where is it they're trying to go, what outcomes are they trying to accomplish, um, what's slowing them down or stopping them or getting them in the way from getting the results that they want, like what are the challenges that they're experiencing. Um, Sometimes we'll talk a little bit about um, like what is what else have they tried that hasn't worked so that I I can get a good understanding, again, of what their beliefs were before this. Like, Well, I you know, took this, I bought these email copywriting templates, but then I got them and I didn't know how to necessarily make them align from a messaging standpoint. I didn't know how to make the story connect. That gives me insight on how they've made buying decisions before that I can leverage in the conversation to communicate value um, when the time does come. So normally that that's how we like the, say the first third of the call. And then I just like to do, I've always loved to just do a quick check-in to say like, hey, you know, what about this has been most valuable? Um, how are you like, what about our conversation thus far has been enlightening for you? And that just takes that. Most people don't do that in sales conversations. Um, so it's a really nice, like breakup in like pattern, you know, like a lot of people get on calls and it's like this, I know this person's going to try to sell me into something. And like, we want to do what we can to like, let down the guard, um, and just, you know, create a safe environment and, and establish a, you know, trust from that perspective, So I like to to just have a check-in. How are things going? How are you feeling? Like, what about this conversation has been most valuable? It's really good insight for me to see, like, what things have we discussed or have they shared themselves that are really standing out? And it just gives them a moment to reflect and, again, kind of, like, break up the pattern of what they probably expect to happen on the call because of what they've experienced with other people. And then from there, it's really, like, you know, I've I've been asking a lot of questions. You know, I I think this is probably a good fit. Um, What questions do you have for me? And this allows, like, you want to have control in the beginning of the conversation, like lead as the authority, lead as the expert, but you also want to give them control. And again, it, it just shifts the dynamic of the like emotional state that this person is going through, both you and them, again, to create a safe environment for this conversation to be happening. Because um, I just think there can just be a lot of tension on sales calls and like fear and I don't know, like nasty expectations that are not always true. Um, but that allows them to be asking the closing questions, which puts you in a really strong position because now, again, it, it just changed the dynamic of the conversation. So they'll ask their closing questions. Usually, it's about like, well, what what happens next? How do we get started? What's the investment? What's all included? Um, is is this gonna work for me? And you'll just answer whatever questions they have. But it's it's how do I say this? It's kind of like a, even in in relationships it's not, you're not forcing yourself on them. You're not, you know, it's permission. You're asking for permission. And like, that is, that, that's healthy conversation and healthy relationship and like normal personal life. Just a lot of us don't translate that over really well in our business environment, especially in a sales conversation. So it's leading with that permission-based perspective. And then, you know, they'll, they'll ask their questions and they'll get to a place where it's like, well, where do we go from here? And that's really great. And then you start your enrollment process. Um, we collect payment over the phone. We teach our clients how to collect payment over the phone rather than sending invoices. And that's because they have very pretty structured processes. Um, they're not, there's not a lot of variable or customization, but I always tried, even if you do need to send a proposal or send an invoice, schedule a follow-up call. Do not let them, how do I say this? You know, you don't want to like leave the, you don't want to leave the sales loop open, So, like, even if you do need to send a proposal and it's like, hey, I'm going to send you this invoice or send you this proposal in the next couple of days, let's schedule a follow up call so we can discuss your decision and just determine what next steps need to be. So, you want to maintain control of the entire sales container from the moment they book until the moment they make a decision. And a lot of the time, most people do not, that follow up, most people don't do. And they let the person make the decision on their own at home. And especially if you're selling high ticket and you're moving them into like, they're investing in something that's probably like, Maybe the most they've ever spent, or it's going to force them to up-level in a way. Um, again, we don't want their fear to cloud their judgment on making their decision. So it's like, how can we maintain again that safety, security, and control over the conversation? Schedule that follow up call so that that decision can be clearly communicated, rather than a prospect like ghosting you or you know not responding or hey, I thought about it some more, even though I was a, all in yesterday, I'm pulling out and like because it, it's now it's normal if you're selling high end. And this being dealing with clients, this is their first time investing at that level where they can kind of like talk themselves out of it. Um, Not because it's not the right fit, but just because it's an up level and they're afraid. So that's more of like a detailed breakdown of, of our champagne closer method and like how we handle sales calls.
1: Okay, let's break in again and note that Drisha has shared some of the best advice that we have ever heard on our podcast And anyone can take the last 30 minutes that she just shared and use the processes to increase what they charge, to take a big step up in the kinds of clients that uh, they work with. Um, And I I just wanted to point out one thing that really jumped out at me, uh, and that's her POP method, the pick one problem, pick one person, pick one package, POP. We talk about this all the time. It really comes down to niching, right? And it isn't until you figure out who is that ideal client. What is the one problem that you can solve for them that you can charge for, you know, and then package that up as a process, as a framework, the things that we basically teach in the underground, the accelerator and our programs. But once you do that, that's the thing that sets you apart so that you can really start working with different clients and charging the kinds of dollar amounts that Jerisha is talking about. And I think the more we can hold on to that idea that, you know, niching sometimes gets a, a bad rap, but... Once you choose that one client, the one problem, the one process, you're off to the races.
0: Yeah. And we've seen so many different services pages um, from content writers, copywriters, and I mean, including our own at times too, where there's just so many different options and it is like a menu for prospects to decide. We almost give the job to the prospect like, hey, you figure out what you need and you let me know. And I love how Jerisha just flips it around so that we can take that control back. And um, like she said, confused clients do not convert. So I think it's probably worthwhile for any of us uh, who have multiple offers to really start to consolidate those um, so that we're not making the prospect do the work.
1: I agree. So I, we, obviously, she literally just gave us a 30-minute you know, sales process, uh, you know, seminar, what to do, what not to do. Did anything else stick out to you as you listened?
0: Yeah. I mean, that was definitely a masterclass. Uh, I'm grateful to have sat through. Uh, the other part that really was fun to talk about was the pattern interrupt. And as copywriters, you know, we love a good pattern interrupt, uh, but I've never thought about using a pattern interrupt on my sales calls. And so the way that she introduced her pattern interrupt um, towards the end of her sales call, where she just kind of checks in with the prospect and just set, like, throws it back on the prospect and says like how so how how are you how like how does this all land with you? Um, that was really effective and allows you to kind of change the dynamic, cut through some of the attention on the sales call, take some of the pressure off the uh, other person, the prospect on the call who might feel pressured to say yes or to buy something. And so it's just a really good way of resetting even the energy on a sales call. Uh, it's definitely something that. I want to test on my sales calls.
1: Yeah, I thought that was a really good idea. And also, you know, how she finishes up the calls when she talked about not leaving the sales loop open, scheduling the follow-up call, even if you're sending a proposal, even if they need time to think about it, you get the next step in the calendar. You don't ever leave it open. And we see so many copywriters struggle with clients ghosting them at that part of the process. They've they've been through the sales call, they've expressed an interest, maybe even they responded really well on the sales call, and then they you know, poof, they're gone. And so having that follow-up meeting scheduled in the calendar to discuss the next options is just part of controlling the entire process. And I think showing the client that you own this process, that you are in control of the relationship is a really important part of working with higher end clients. It's something that the client who's paying, you know, $300, $500 for a project doesn't expect. It is definitely something Who from clients who are paying, say, $20,000 a project, they do expect it. They want you to do the work and to take control of that whole process.
0: Okay. So let's jump back in and finish up the conversation.
1: I do want to maybe change the conversation just a little bit, Jerisha, because I think some people may be listening to this and say, oh, yeah, well, that works when things are going really well. But, you know, recently the economy hasn't been so great or, you know, I'm, I'm working from home and I've got all of these other things going on in my life and I can't focus on the kinds of stuff that I need to focus on. How would you say that buying behavior has changed in the last, uh, you know, six months or so You're recording this five, six months into the coronavirus uh stuff that's going on like how has buying behavior changed and what do we need to do to make sure that we're staying on top of that
2: yeah i feel like people's um sensitivity is like ridiculously heightened right now like which is a positive thing and can also be a challenging thing to deal with um i think people are very very hyper aware of where like gaps challenges problems are what uncertainty actually is like this uncertainty in the world has always existed pre-covid and post-covid like there's there's less we have way less control than we like coerce like believe you know convince ourselves that we actually have and it's very very prevalent right now um but i think it's really important if you think of like maslow's hierarchy of needs um you know i think people are very like if you're selling an offer that if you were selling an offer before that was more of like on the higher end of that pyramid more um like you know, highest level of identity, like more non tangible. I think for the general population, your positioning or your your messaging is going to need a shift to be more focused on like those first two rungs of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, of like, um, like primary, like your baseline psychological needs being met. Of you know, shelter, food, regular, like day-to-day life, getting by safety of like personal security, employment. Um, and then that middle tier of like love and belonging, like race relationship, friendships, connectivity, and intimacy. Um, and I'm, I'm just bringing that in. Cause again, understanding the psychology of how your buyer makes decisions is really, really important when you're trying to sell. And especially if you're trying to sell high ticket, because there's other variables that are now at play and the biggest thing that we've helped our clients do and myself has done is like really looking at where maybe I can't keep, um, well, I guess we really haven't never have, but you have to really be dialed in on what your promise is and your ability to articulate it in a way that coincides with one of those base level needs or like security and like financial needs and being able to communicate how your offer is going to give them that security and safety. And I think before some of us could kind of get away with not, with that not being very clear, um, because there may be, you know, times weren't as sensitive as they are right now. But I think that is literally right when COVID, well, our business has tripled since COVID hit, which has been insane. Most of our clients have grown significantly since COVID hit, either doubling their revenue or tripling their revenue. And it's been because they have been able to realign and readjust the positioning of their offer to align with that, to provide that not not just the idea of, or the confidence that yes, I can deliver what you're asking me to do, but I can also communicate and create this trust of like security and safety, making this buying decision with me. And I think that's just a really important thing that I don't know if it's going to change anytime soon, um, but even if things go back to normal, whatever normal even might look like for us after all of this, if you can maintain that confidence and that certainty And and safety, when you're articulating your value, like you're always going to do really, really well. Um, It's just a stronger way to sell, especially if you're selling high end. So like one thing I had my clients do, what we did is we really looked at like, what are we selling? The first thing is like, what do we actually need to cut? Like there's probably offers that we're selling that are not profitable. There's probably things that we're doing that are not actually producing results that align with where we're trying to go. Like the very first thing is remove any confusion in your offers remove anything that's not profitable for you in your own business, because that will give you capacity to actually show up and sell and articulate your value in a way that's more convicted and with more confidence and more certainty by not having you know distractions in your own business. Um, but then from there, it's like, really look at what, what is my program promise? like What is the guarantee that I'm selling somebody? Um, how confident am I in my promise and my guarantee? Like, how strong am I in my ability to be able to articulate the value of it in a way that, yes, communicates that I can do what they, they need to do, but also gives them this feeling of safety and security. Um, and it, and maybe this might be helpful, like a, a tangible thing that we've done is we used to just have like um, client contracts, like very legal jargon client contracts. Um, But one thing that we started doing at the beginning of this year, this is actually before COVID hit, but it's been a huge asset to us once COVID did happen. Um, And especially even when all of like the racial protesting and things like that started is we created what we call um, like a program promise or an offer promise. And this goes beyond what's listed in the contract, but it really just clearly details out like, this is what you can expect from us. These are all the, like, it's like 12 or 15 bullet points of how we're going to treat them, how they can expect communication from us. Um, what they can expect from us from a deliverable standpoint. And then this is what we expect from you. And there's five bullet points on things of what we expect for them. And that document has been really helpful because it it creates security and safety. There's no ambiguity of of the relationship or the agreement that we're stepping into. And it just allows everybody to be on the exact same playing field to make decisions that are clear. And like, we know what we're both getting and we're both choosing to step into this. Um, But from a client perspective, like I think, All of my clients for me was like, wow, like I have I feel safe making this investment, even though it may be scary for me or it may be a big leap. So I would just think of those questions that I just listed, but also what are things that you can be incorporating into your process um, at the very beginning to also instill that and even more than just like what you can verbally say, like what are other assets that you can build into your onboarding process to really make them feel safe and make them feel like, yes, this is the right decision for me. Um, beyond just your ability to articulate and align how their problem is going to be solved with the promise of your offer and, like, why is it beneficial for them right now?
0: Okay. So I know you mentioned, you know, you've hit the seven-figure mark, and I – read somewhere in your content about seven mindset shifts that positioned your business for seven figures. Can you share a couple of those mindset shifts? I know we're at the end of our time together, so maybe sharing seven is too much, but what are some of your favorite or maybe most useful mindset shifts that copywriters could benefit from?
2: I want to share one that I did not include in that podcast episode so that if people go back and listen, there'll be there's seven that are fantastic, but I want to share one that I didn't share there that I recently was having a conversation with my girlfriends about. Um, when I was starting, I never knew, like one, I didn't know that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I knew I wanted to make a lot of money, but I thought it was going to happen through corporate. I, I mean, I didn't know that this world existed or that this is something that I even wanted for my life. So maybe somebody can relate to that versus like I started this business because I wanted to make seven figures. Like that was a an identity or a goal that has definitely evolved over the years. Um, but when I was in my business and, uh, I had crossed the six figure mark, I was making like maybe 150 K, 200 K a year. I used to have this like mindset belief that like I had, I, I wouldn't be successful unless I had like this massive launch. Like I'd have to, I just had this goal that I had to make hundred K in one launch in order to be deemed successful. So like one of the mindset shifts I would invite you guys all to look into was like one, what are your current beliefs around money? And like, do those beliefs actually serve you? Who taught them to you? Where did you learn them from? And like, are these truths that you want to continue keeping as you move forward? But I used to have this very strong belief. I had a lot of shame anytime that I would do a launch or like had this targeted effort to enroll clients. If I didn't hit the goal, I I would feel so defeated. I would have like this internal embarrassment that I would experience. Like I just had, I carried the shame around because it's like, Oh, I only got two clients, or oh, I only got seven clients, or oh, I only got whatever it was. It never actually hit the the bigger goal that I was going after. And one of the biggest minds, there was two mindset shifts in that that I think really unlocked my potential to be able to to grow exponentially this year. Like literally at the beginning of this year, we were doing about twenty five thousand dollars in revenue. Last year, we were we could not break over the thirty k a month consistently. Like we would hit it and then it would drop, and we would hit it and it would drop, Um, but we've been having consistent 100K months the past few months here. And like it, this, I attribute a lot of that to this like mindset shift is like, first and foremost, like check your ego. Like I kept saying that I only got this. I'm like, if my clients heard me say that, how would that cause them to feel? Or what would they think about me? If I was like, well, I only got three people or I only got whatever it was, like diminishing the value of that person because it's, it's a pure ego thing. Um, so that's one thing of like, Every human body that you touch and serve is ju- is just as valuable as if, as if a thousand of them wanted to touch and serve you. Like you got to touch and serve a thousand. So don't ever diminish the value of like who has trusted you to say yes, um, and to work with you. But the second thing of like every my success is not dependent on how big or not one launch is. Like my business is not a launch. A launch is a is a vehicle or a strategy that I can use to have a cash injection in my business, but my business is not the launch itself. Like the success of my business is not dependent on how well or how bad a launch goes. And that was a mindset shift. I'm not sure if this is like an aha for you guys, but it was huge for me. Maybe you guys already had this figured out, but that like my success or the growth of the business is not dependent on the outcome of one launch. And that really, I think just freed me up to not focus or have all of this pressure on like one targeted outreach to like having like this make or break type of mentality around it. Um, And I really just started focusing, shifting my energy and attention on like, how can I increase my monthly recurring revenue? How can I, instead of me focusing on getting one huge cash injection at one time, how can I focus on making micro improvements in my marketing, micro improvements in my client delivery, micro improvements in my sales conversations? How can I just increase my metrics by a percent, two percent, three percent so that like I'm increasing my monthly recurring revenue rather than having this huge cash injection? And that was a mindset shift that like it catapulted us because my focus on diagnosing the problem shifted. I started going after different things or looking at different things um, as solutions rather than you know, focusing on how do I make this one big launch, make all this money or else my business is a failure type of thing. So that was when I did not include in that podcast episode or that live stream. Um, that, I mean, that has been huge for me.
1: Jerisha, you mentioned mindset shifts. I feel like I've had about five of them on this podcast and maybe I should have had a few more. I mean, you've shared so much valuable information Hopefully our listeners are gonna find it just as valuable. Maybe I just needed to hear it and you know, for where I am in my business. But if people want to hear more from you, maybe hop on your email list or connect with you in some way. Where should they go to find out more?
2: Yeah, the first thing that I would love to invite you to do is actually screenshot yourself listening to this podcast episode and tag here, Rob and myself over on Instagram stories and just let us know what your top takeaway was. Like I think listening to episodes like these are great and you can leave motivated and like. Maybe you have an extra pep in your step if you're like walking or jogging while listening to this. Um, But I would love for us to like cement in one thing that either you can start to implement or one thing that you can start thinking about a little bit differently based off of what we discussed today. So um, tag me over on Instagram stories. I'm at Jerisha Hawk and my website's jerishahawk.com. You can find me everywhere on social at Jerisha Hawk, but I would love to continue the conversation um, in DMs about the dialogue we've had today. So I'm just at, Jerisha Hawk. And I will see you in over on Instagram stories.
0: I love that idea of bringing everyone over to Instagram because you're, I think you're the first guest who's asked our listeners to take action and post. So I like that challenge. And I, yeah, I echo Rob. This is, I've had so many aha moments from this conversation. So thank you so much for giving us your time and sharing your expertise with us. You guys are so welcome. This was such a fruitful
2: convo. So I had, I had a pleasure being here.
0: All right, thank you. Jerisha mentioned your success is not dependent on your latest launch or project, and I I'm so glad she mentioned that because after right after you and I interviewed her, we had a, we walked right into a launch for our accelerator program, and so it was fresh in my mind as we were working on the launch, um, which you know had its moments and was a little bit. Messy at times as launches typically are. And so I remember thinking as we were in launch mode, um, you know, that this is not, this does not represent our entire business. Like we care about this, we want to attract the right people, Um, we want to grow the program, but whether or not this is this huge launch does not determine the success or future of our entire business. And especially working in the launch space with clients, I know that we put so much weight and so much pressure on ourselves to have this huge launch. And I just think it's, it's really inflated and I'm glad that she called it out. And even just to hear that it was a mindset shift she had to make um, just made me feel better too and helped kind of put me at ease throughout our launch, which ended up to be you know a great, a great launch. But I just didn't feel that pressure the entire time. I was like, if it doesn't work out the way we wanted it to, it's fine, we've done a lot of work leading up to it that is more important anyway,
1: yeah, earlier this year, we interviewed Eric Solbaen, I think that was episode one hundred and seventy three on the podcast, and he talked about the failure of a launch, you know he was surrounded by all of these people who were literally having you know close to seven figure launches, and he had you know four people respond. But then he talked about the launch echo and the things that happened in your business after the launch, and how that process led him to working with uh, yeah. some very high ticket clients that um, I think, if I remember remembering it right, you know led to a million dollar business for him. And so it's not always about the thing. Sometimes it's about the things that happen after the thing. That's maybe a really weird way of saying that. But yeah, your your latest success or failure, does not define the health of your business, and lots of good things can continue to still come even after something maybe doesn't go as well, or or you know maybe things won't go as well because you've just had this great success. It, it's always about moving forward, trying harder, working on the next thing, and never giving up.
0: Yeah, and I I don't want to run a business that's dependent on one or two launches every year. I mean that's a lot. That's <laughs> talk it's about a lot. stressful. That is a lot of pressure. It's not the type of business I want to run. So I think it's also um, just a reminder that we have the freedom to choose what type of business model and what type of business we want to create. All right, so we want to thank Jerisha for sharing so many great ideas around high-ticket sales, processes, mindset. Uh, We didn't just enjoy this discussion and every second of it. We actually have a list of takeaways and ideas we can use to improve our own copywriting businesses. Hopefully you have a couple too. To learn more about Jerisha or her programs, you can go to jerishahawk.com. That's J-E-R-E-S-H-I-A-H-A-W-K.com. And make sure you take a picture of yourself listening to the show like Jerisha asked. Then tag Jerisha and the Copywriter Club on Instagram so we can see what one thing you're going to do differently based on what we talked about today
1: and we are at the end of another show. If you like what you've heard, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts. That helps other copywriters find and learn from and grow from what our guests are sharing. Our intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter songwriter David Muntner. You can learn more about programs like the Copywriter Underground and the Copywriter Think Tank by visiting thecopywriterclub.com. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better. Copy and make more money. Kira and Raps, Copywriters Club, can make you lots of money.